Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Mind for Life podcast. My name is Jeff Boganzik, and I am your host today. We have a very, very special guest with us today. It's Dr. Martin Levinson, and he is going to be talking about how to think better with general semantics. Dr. Levinson is a member of the Authors Guild, the National Book Critics Circle, and Pen America. He is also a past president of the Institute of General Semantics. He's the book review editor for ETC, a review of general semantics, and also a contributing editor for The Satirist, America's most critical online journal. He has published 10 books and numerous articles and poems in various publications. He holds a PhD from NYU and currently lives in Riverhead, New York. And so it's going to be a, an incredible time, and hopefully you'll learn something about language, the relationship between language and thought and meaning, and I'm very excited about it. Before we get into it, let me just let you know a couple of things. First of all, all of the show notes for this program are located on our website, mindforlife.org forward slash zero six seven. So you'll find out more about General Semantics, the founder, Alfred Korzybski, his books, um, how you can get involved, how you can receive the journal, and then some references that uh, Dr. Levinson mentions in this podcast. So we want to encourage you to do that. Also, we have some freebies available for you, how to start a difficult conversation, a cheat sheet for having those challenging times, those challenging conversations with people, and then also um, a nice person's guide to becoming more assertive. Again, using language in a positive and constructive way to improve your thoughts and your relationships all of that is available on the show notes for this website, and so hopefully you'll take a look there. And uh, I'm very excited about this interview, and I hope that you enjoy the podcast today. How are you, sir? I'm good, and how are you? I'm great. I appreciate you coming on this podcast and joining me on the program. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so... Uh, I, first of all, I've been acquainted with you through the Institute of General Semantics, and I know you've been involved uh, for a long time with that, a former past president. Can you just explain exactly what that is? And for those that don't know or are not aware, what exactly general semantics is, you, th this is coming uh as a result of the talk that you gave over Zoom to the to the people that were a part of that uh, from the Institute on how to use general semantics to think better. So just if you would start out by giving us a little bit of a ground in what general semantics is, where it came from, a little bit on the background of that, that would be great. Oh, sure. My pleasure. So it was uh, it's a system that uh, was formulated by a fellow by the name of Alfred Korzybski, he was a Polish emigre to the United States. He fought actually before he came to the United States in the Russian army during World War One. And uh, while serving the Russian army, he actually was at the front and he saw all this, the horrors of combat. He saw men die. He saw the great machinery of war, slaughter, you know, millions of men on the field. And he thought to himself, how is it that technology keeps improving so we can, as humans, kill ourselves better, but human relations doesn't? You know, we're still killing ourselves now in 1914, like we did in 1014, like we did in 14, mm -hmm. like we did before. 
the AD before, you know, into the BC years. And so we said, I wonder if I could come up with a system that would be scientific that would improve human relations like technology improves. Right. So we spent, um, after the war, he came to the United States, he became a citizen, and he spent uh, the next 12 years coming up with the system that he termed general semantics. Now, the name general semantics is sort of an unfortunate name because people, when they when I tell them general semantics, they think, oh, I took a course in semantics in college. Right. But it's not semantics. Semantics is a subset of general semantics, what Korzybski meant by the title. And don't forget, he wasn't a native English speaker. Mm-hmm. He was Polish. He spoke five languages. But what he meant by general semantics, he used it in the Greek sense of semanin, which means meaning. He meant a general system of meaning. And of course, I can't tell you exactly what general semantics is. That's one of the things that general semantics would warn against. Right. The word is we can get into that. But basically, general semantics, from my perspective, is um, a way to evaluate the world and yourself in it more accurately and more effectively. Mm -hmm. Now, you are taught, of course, just so the audience is aware of how particular you are being with your language um, and using language in a particular way. So you know, maybe talk a little bit about how it is that language itself trips up our thinking. What is it about the language uh, that we use every day that really gets us into problems of perception and interpreting our world? Good question. So you're right about language, and it's not just English, it's other languages too, but since I expect your audience mostly speaks English and that's how they're hearing it, we'll talk about English. So English is an interesting language. First of all, English has a lot of polarities. So if I say good, this was a free association test, I imagine a person would say bad. Mm -hmm. If I say tall, short, fat, thin. Okay, so we tend to think of categories in the extremes, short, But in fact, in the real world, I mean, in the physical world, people aren't tall or short in the sense of if you put all the people in the world on a continuum, going from the tallest person in the world, let's say a super tall basketball player, to the shortest person in the world, let's say a mini dwarf, most of us would be somewhere in between those two. Right. But But we don't have words for where we would fall in the in-between, so we say tall or short. So the language itself causes us to not be specific enough. It lends us towards generalities. And so that's not the worst thing in the world, but it's good to be aware of that, that being more specific often is a good idea when you're talking to people because tall and short are really your opinions. I mean, one person on a basketball team, if you're six four in a center, you're short. Uh, but six, four typically would be considered more on the tall side, but compared to a person who's seven, maybe not so tall. So just the language itself, because it has polarities built into it is a problem. Another uh, problem with English is the use of the word is. So is is a tricky word mm-hmm. <laughs> because we, we just say it, it trips off our tongue. And we think what we're saying makes sense in terms of describing things. But does it really? So when I say uh, this is a table, 
pointing to something. I mean, I could only assume your viewers know something of what I'm talking about. We can agree it's a table. Right. But then I say, you know, I saw this uh, movie last night. It's This is really a good movie. As if I'm using the same descriptor as this is a table. But the person would say, no, no, no. I didn't think it would be. It's a lousy movie. It is a lousy movie. Right. Well, what is it? Is it a good movie? Is it a lousy movie? Well, clearly these are opinions. This is a table. It could be construed in a strict sense as an opinion, but it's more like a fact. Correct. We can actually point to a table and see a table. But if we're talking to this is a good movie or this is a bad movie, it's an opinion. And people argue over these things. How can you prove a movie is good or bad? Mm -hmm. No matter how much, how many critics you bring into the conversation, it's just an opinion. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways you can lower the temperature on arguments over that is to say, in my opinion, this is a good movie. Right. Well, it's really, it's really hard to argue with that. It's an opinion. So general semantics suggests when you talk about opinions in that sense, you use qualifying statements like, in my opinion, it seems to me it appears. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that you talked about there, when you talk about the nature of our language, I know that there, uh, and you make um, reference to this in some of your articles that I've read, back to Aristotelian logic. Um, so can you explain that for our audience and how that kind of fits in with this whole you know, duality, if you will, of language. Sure. So Aristotle was a pretty bright guy. Uh, a lot of our <laughs> laws of thought, well, the laws of thought come from him, a lot of other things. But he wasn't perfect. He did the best he could when he was living, when he was. So um, had he's living today, I think he would have been saying other things. Because let's face it, we only know what we know depending on our background and the age we're living in. I mean, 100 years from now, what we think is so modern now will be considered old hat. Right. And he was more than 100 years ago. So anyway, Aristotle had some laws of thought, the general semantics questions. And that's why general semantics, sort of academic, but it calls itself a non-Aristotelian system. Now, that doesn't mean anti-Aristotelian. We're not against Aristotle. Aristotle said a lot of good things. And even in some of the things that it's non, that we say non, makes sense. But it questions a few laws of thought. One of them I just talked about earlier with the either or thinking, tall mm-hmm. or short, bigger, et cetera, fat or thin. So Aristotle said basically either or thinking, it's either this or that. Well, that's not true usually. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you get asked a question, well, is it good or bad? Think about that. People usually answer the question that they're asked. So what general semantics would advise one to do is question the question. You don't have to say the person, well, you could say, you know, there are probably more than just two answers to that. Is it good or bad? Now, I know a lot of people get upset if you start qualifying your answer. We live in an age of television. Just is it good or bad? Right. Well, that, that works on cable TV. But if you really want to be a, a thinker in the real world, uh, you can say, well, I think it's good in this way and maybe not so good in that way. Now, this won't be good in politics because if you talk like this as a politician, 
you will lose an election. Right. But it's good for you to think this way because you're not a politician, unless you are a politician. But it's good just in general, even if you don't want to express it, to think, gee, there's more things to consider. So if someone says, for example, do we do this or that? You may think, well, let me think. Maybe there are other things. Or maybe you can come up with other ways of doing things. So that's a good thing. Also, Aristotle said another law of thought was um, a thing is either A or not A. So there are so many more things a thing can be than just the narrow parameters of what the questioner or the, what anyone posits is telling you. So general semantics always says, or, or not always, because that's another bugaboo in general semantics, right. going to think always or never, although it's mm -hmm. tricky because you, well, if you get into that later, but basically um, you want to think more in gradations. Now, when I say you want to, you don't have to. There may be times when it's not a good idea to think of gradations. I mean, you know, either or. I mean, if you are walking against a traffic light and a car is coming at you, you know, you don't have too many choices. You better get or out. a traffic right. light. Right. If the traffic light either green or red. Okay. Unless there's a yellow there. But okay, let's say there's only two. So sometimes, sometimes either or thinking works. But in general, if you have the time to think more deeply and consider more choices, you don't have to fall into the trap of answering questions that narrow things down that way. Mm -hmm. Do you, let me ask you this question. Do you think that, or maybe you can comment on it, that our political uh, environment and the partisanship is a direct result of our language and this kind of, you know, forcing people into an either or position i do uh i think that's a lot has a lot to do with it um there's there's a great book out there that i recommend to your uh, to your audience mm -hmm. uh, neil postman who was a nyu professor cultural critic uh, i have a doctor from nyu he was on my actually my doctoral committee uh, but but even if he wasn't, I would have read the book. And many people know the book. Most journalists are aware of Postman. And often he will get quoted, you know, today, even though he passed away 20 years ago. And even though this particular book came out in 1984. So this book is considered that good that people still quote it. I'm actually listening to a uh, an audible of uh, Andy Borowitz, one of my favorite satirists. And he's quoting Postman all over the place. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so that's good. Well, Postman had an interesting uh, thought. And again, no, no thought is original. Everything is, as Newton says, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Right. So basically, you build your thought. But basically, the idea is uh, what today we have is, a, what Postman was saying, we have a, a culture based on images or television, which he was talking about in 84. And he talked about the way we've gone from a print culture, you know, Gutenberg, the printing press, hundreds of years, people got their information largely through reading. So reading takes work. I mean, you have to like sit there in one position, look at something, and your brain is engaged. Uh, I know when I grew up in the 50s, I'm on the New York City subway, people have the newspaper open, they're silently looking at the paper, you can almost see them thinking. Right. right? Okay. With television, you kind of sit there passively, and the stuff comes in, and there's hardly anything to really think about. Also, Television is an entertainment medium, which Postman pointed out, and 
if you're on television, you don't want to present necessarily, probably not, logical, slow, methodical arguments because that's not entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the one of the suppositions for why Hillary lost to Trump in 2016, and one I actually think is actually, I buy it, is that Trump was so much more entertaining than Hillary. Right. And on TV, Hillary came across not entertain, not very entertaining. She wanted to talk about the issues, boring. Right. Uh, she spoke sort of slowly. People compared her to a school teacher, and you know we don't want to be taught in this country. Politics. Bill Clinton, a Rhodes Scholar, tried to look like a Southern good old boy. So if you really are an intellectual, you don't want to appear that way. Right. So basically, I think what happens with the language is people expect the language to be entertaining language, mm-hmm. not informative language. And so that's one of it. And also television is about emotion. I mean, if you watch, I don't care what your political persuasion is, MSNBC, Fox, CNN. It's all about getting you emotionally involved, not intellectually involved. It's all about fear and outrage. And whether it's Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow, the emotion the the information they're giving you is different, but the emotions they want to elicit are the same. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, that has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so how would general semantics help people when dealing with those types of very charged language or the emotionally charged language or, you know, uh, things that are said in particular ways to kind of force people's thinking or push them more towards their, um, uh, you know, their, their already held beliefs. And I know in one of your articles, you talk about um, confirmation bias and how, how does, how does general semantics in that whole system help to think outside of that and get outside of that trap? If that's even possible, I guess. Well, I think it's possible. Uh, I'm sure it's possible. I mean, there would I'll quote studies. When, you, when students just quote studies, you look like an expert. But there are studies all over the place. But okay, there were many studies. Right. But even in your own life, if you've had confirmation bias on certain things, if you've ever changed your mind on anything, it shows it's possible. Good. And if you've lived long enough, even in a short life, you've changed your mind on certain things. Right. I don't like chocolate ice cream anymore. I like vanilla ice cream. Right. Well, you changed your mind. What happened? Well, that's right. What happened? The idea is, in general semantics, we talk about life being a process. So change is always occurring. People say, oh, I haven't changed in 20 years. That's ridiculous. Your body's changed. I mean, we're changing all the time. And of course, your thoughts are changing. Now, maybe some of your general principles haven't changed. Okay. But but typically, we change over time. So confirmation bias, and we all do this in politics. We We pick a particular side and try to get information that conforms to it. But general semantics would say, okay, you can do that. It's fun to do that with other people because you're part of the team. So if you want to go drinking with people, you don't want to go against them because you won't be part of the group. If I go out with a bunch of Trumpers and I you know, start talking liberal stuff or I go out with a bunch of liberals or start talking Trump stuff, I'll be, I'll be pretty much isolated from that group pretty quickly. Right. So you want to pick your, your battles, and you don't have to even do it with people. Do it with yourself, just as a fun exercise, just because you have a brain and you're allowed to do it and no one can see it. So this is something you can do just for fun and say to yourself, and one of the things general semantics does, I think almost the most important thing, 
I talk about knee-jerk reactions. Korzybski labeled it delay your reaction. Mm -hmm. It's something people uniquely can do, or human beings uniquely can do compared to other animals. So other animals react instinctively to things. You know, Pavlov showed that, you know, you kick a dog immediately, you know, bark and stuff. You kick a person, may be different. You call me a, a name, you're an idiot. Okay, so my... You don't have to immediately say, oh, yeah, you're an idiot, too. Right. Oh, yeah, because you could delay your reaction and think, well, just because this person called me a name, does that make me an idiot? Right. I don't think so. So you can tell yourself, well, what I would say is, I wonder why he did that. Now, you can say he either doesn't like me, he's using a name. If it's an argument, you bring up points. He has no points, so he's attacking me through a name which is the weakest form of argument, he's frustrated, so maybe I'm winning the argument. That may be, he feel good, he's calling mm -hmm. me an idiot, he's got nothing else. Mm -hmm. But to do that, you've got to try to delay your reaction, which you can do. Human beings can delay their reactions. Um, and Al, you know, Albert Ellis, the psychologist, gave an example of this, a fairly famous example, um, famous in terms of the psychology community. He talked about being on a bus. And uh, you're riding in a bus, it's a crowded bus, and, and you, you're being jostled by one person. You're keeping jostled by this person. And finally, you want to you, you look at this person and you want to just scream, stop jostling me. And then you see there's a dog by him, a guide dog, and he's blind. Mm -hmm. Wow. You're not going to yell at him. It's not his fault. I mean, you know, it's amazing he can get around. Right. So the point is, it doesn't cost much to delay your reaction. You know, sometimes you may not want to delay your reaction, but often it doesn't cost much to delay your reaction. And in that even split second, you get more time to see what's going on around you. And so general semantics really advises people, if they can, and if the situation warrants it, and you most do, delay your reaction because before you react. If, if you're angry, you know, words said in anger, uh, often after you say them, you regret you did. You know, you're with a partner. I've been married 48 years. I can tell you that many times the authorities, not even many, and I know general semantics, and I immediately react, and I so regret it. The rest right. of the day will not turn out well for me. Right. But often I'm able to hold it back and say, no, if I say this, it's going to go a downhill road. And so I'll modify it and it'll work out better. So I'm just saying delayed reaction is one of the uh, formulations of general semantics. I would commend it to the audience. Right. That is also a self-control issue probably, right? So there's like a yeah. willpower part of that there. But the fact that somebody can just recognize that you, first of all, have the ability to do that. You don't have to react you can respond um, within your appropriate, you know, way. You don't have to just automatically react. But that is a. I imagine people have difficulty because even when you know this stuff, like you said, you know, sometimes you get triggered into saying something or somebody says something and you want to respond in a particular way. So, um, share if you would. There's a couple of other things that bring us problems when it when it we talk about our language um, in the article that you wrote, The Art of Clear Thinking, which I'm assuming that the talk was based somewhat upon that article? Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, I, so for the audience, is that talk available? Like uh, if somebody wanted to go watch that on the YouTube channel for the, for example, the, the IGS YouTube channel, do you know? I don't. You'd have to uh, contact uh, Lance Strait, who's the president of the Institute. He was mm -hmm. also my techie that night. He was doing the work. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope it's available. Uh, it's based on an article that I had published seven years ago in ETC, a review of general semantics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've used that article in other you know, talks, and et cetera, uh, because it basically gives you 10 kind of formulations where if you read it, an example, some of the humorous, I'm always, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of humor mm -hmm. as Postman was and getting information across. I uh, published a book a few years ago called Practical Fairy Tales for mm -hmm. Everyday Living. Mm -hmm. uh, and that book proved so popular, it's actually been translated to six languages. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's currently being translated to Arabic. It's already been translated into Hebrew. So if everyone reads it in the Middle East, we'll say general semantics is responsible for peace in the Middle East. <laughs> hey, now that's something you can hang a legacy on, right? Oh, wow. If that, if I, believe me, if, if that happens, right. I definitely would, would do that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so humor is important. And you, but I'm not sure. You'd have to work. You, there's a, the, web, the Institute of General Semantics has a website. Uh, and there's a place where you can contact the people at the Institute or Lance with the president. You can email him or call him and you can find that out. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's not just for academics. Like if you want to be a member of IGS, that's not just for academics. Anybody who is interested in the field or interested in some of the principles can join and become a member of IGS. That is correct. Now, I, as I said before, Neil Post was on my PhD committee, so I have a PhD. Um, and I taught a number of, I wasn't a college professor in my life. I was an administrator, actually, uh, with the uh, Department of Education in New York. Uh, but I taught many college courses. And you, know, you could argue that I'm an academic in a certain sense. Uh, but when I first learned about general semantics, I learned about it through a continuing education course. Mm -hmm. uh, taught at Cooper Union, which could have been taught at a high school. I mean, continuing education courses basically are for anybody. Right. You don't have to go to college. And a lot of the people in that class I was taking were not college graduates, uh, which was fine. Um, and Korzybski, when he came up with general semantics, really didn't want to want it to go down an academic track. Right. He said, you know, you can write about this stuff, and I have. You write books, articles, good for you. But that's not really what I'm aiming for here. What I'm aiming for is for the, in quotes, everyday person to apply the formulations I'm giving them to everyday life. That's the target audience. And so the Institute, there are people who are academics in the Institute, there are professors, but we also have people in all sorts of work, actors, waiters, uh, salespeople, people work in other places. Um, lawyers, accountants, bookkeepers. You don't really have to be a genius to learn this stuff. And I'll, I'll tell you how not of a genius you have to be. So my dissertation at NYU, uh, I did a dissertation. I was at the time a junior high school counselor. Mm -hmm. And I convinced my uh, dissertation committee to let me do a dissertation using general semantics. And part of that a big part of it was to teach junior high school students general semantics. Mm -hmm. 
And not only did I teach them general semantics, the group I was teaching were kids who were doing badly in school. So these weren't like the top of students in the class, you know, mm-hmm. the AP students, the, the bright right. students. These were students that would, would be considered by the school the slowest students, and they were able to learn it and apply it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I suspect your audience is one step ahead of that group, and even if they're not, it's the general semantics. Korzybski said it's baby stuff. Right. So the trick is, even though it has an erudite name, general semantics, um, honestly, the stuff is pretty easy to learn. The tough part is the application, application. consistently. Right. So it's uh, how did you get in that class in the first place? Like what happened that this was, you know, you just stepped in or did it, did the title interest you or what? Well, that's a good question. So I'm uh, 1978. I'm living in Greenwich Village, New York. Wow. I finally got to Manhattan. I grew up in Queens and my dream in life was to live <laughs> in Manhattan in the village. The 70s was a great time, by right. the way, because everything was cheap. You could live in luxury apartments on a school teacher's salary in Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, try to do that today. But anyway, I was living in the village. I was going to NYU, which could walk to my house, from my house to NYU, getting this PhD. So I was taking, you know, academic courses. Uh, but I still, had, I was working full time, but uh, I always liked learning. I still had time available. And I always wanted to take a course at Cooper Union uh-huh. because I was a history student and uh, Abraham Lincoln delivered a very important speech in the uh, right before he ran for president. And it was a wonderful building. And so I wanted an excuse to take a course there. So I got their catalog and in the catalog, there was a course titled, How to Improve Your Thinking and Communicating Ability. Did not mention general semantics. Okay. Had it meant had it mentioned general semantics, I don't think I'd take the course because that would have sounded too academic to right. me. But this sounded like fun. And also I figured maybe I could even teach the kids some of these things. It probably won't be that complicated. It's continuing education. Mm-hmm. And after one or two sessions, I fell in love with the subject. I couldn't get enough of it. As a matter of fact, that's really what gave me the idea to do a dissertation on general semantics. Okay. I thought, wow, this is so good. I really want to do a dissertation on this. So that's my story. Okay. So um, how in, how would you say from your own experience, that's you know, I'm trying to do the math, you know, quite a few bit uh, of years ago that you were introduced to it. Um, what would you say are the base, you know, we've talked a little bit about non-Aristotelian logic. We've talked a little bit about, um, you know, is the is problem uh, in language. What would you say are the other basic principles of general semantics that should be learned and um, that would be most beneficial for people to learn about, employ, and apply uh, apply in their life? Okay. Well, here are some, not all. Uh, one of them is, uh, well, of course, I mentioned the journal that I had the article in. It's titled ETC, mm-hmm. et cetera, for Review of General Semantics. So ETC is important in general semantics because ETC says, when you think about it, et cetera, you're simply saying, well, whatever you said, et cetera, there's more to be said. And that's a basic formulation of general semantics. In other words, whatever you say about something is not the end of it. Uh, as expert as you are, there's more to be said about whatever you said. And you can't tell me just because of what you said that that's the final statement on it. 
uh, there's more you could learn. So it sort of gives you a more of a, an attitude of humility towards knowledge and information in that, oh, whatever I say, I can always learn more. That's not to say what you're saying isn't valid at the point, but it's only somewhat valid. Mm-hmm. So it gives you the humility to think there's more that can be said, more that can be learned. And so I think that's that's good just to have in your head. Another thing in general semantics is a formulation called dating. So I mentioned before, we live in a process world where things are constantly changing. I mean, every second of the day, less than a second, things are changing. Uh, there's a saying um, in philosophy by Heraclitus, you can't step in the same river twice. What he meant is you step in the first time, by the time you step in the second time, the water's rushed, the, even if you can't see it, the, the bed that you're standing on, the riverbed has changed a bit. So the physical world is always changing. So life, life is processed, so change occurs. So that's a good thing to know, that there's changes constantly going on around you, and it makes you not to cling so hard to things to embrace change. The change is going to happen. And that's not to say the change may necessarily in a particular area be what you consider good, but it's going to happen. So be aware of the fact that you live in a changing world and be open, not to agree necessarily with things, but to be open to consider things. Now, it'll never make you a cable TV host because that would be a stupid way to think. Right. Because no one wants to watch someone on television thinking. Right. That's bad. You want to watch someone on television thinking they know everything. That's good right. because it's entertaining. But I'm saying to you can do, I'm not talking, this is not a class on entertainment or a podcast on entertainment. This is a podcast on how to improve your thinking ability. And you can do this just because you have a brain. Why not use it? Why just go along with the group? Why be part, as all, as all this Huxley said, why just be part of the herd, right. H-E-R-D? Why be a cow? Be be yourself. Be someone who thinks. Be someone, you don't even have to express the thoughts if you don't want to, but at least have them so you could it's just, you know, express them. So, that's, so dating is something where you put a date on something. So Jeff 2022 is not Jeff 2012. Right. You've changed. Thoughts have changed. What you're wearing has changed. Um, everything, pretty much lots of things about you have changed. So things change. So don't be surprised when people change, when things change. That's it. But one other thing I'll talk about is a general semantics formulation called indexing. So indexing means you take a general category and you break it down. So uh, let's say we index, uh, well, it's a great way to get over prejudice, I think. So if you say, well, black people, well, blacks think this way or whites think this way. Really? Okay. How many black people are there? Well, I don't know, 20, 30 million. They all think the same way. Hmm. How many white people are there? I don't know. In the United States. I don't know. 300 million. Really? They all think the same way? No. So with indexing, you say, well, black person number one. Black person number two, now you can't obviously know how right. 20 million, but just the idea that individuals within a group think differently, you then, when you hear people talk about groups, you then think, hmm, maybe this is just a general way to talk about group, and it's about a person trying to advance their agenda by talking about the group that way, instead of how that group 
really is, and the group is only how the individual people think. And you really can't know how black people think unless you do a poll and say, well, 42% of the black people, of the 300 black people in this poll thought this way. That you could do. But you'd only say that's to these people in this poll. I think that's legit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about? So like great example there when it comes to statistics, you know, because people have a tendency to use statistics to their advantage, uh, to advance their agenda or whatever it is, how, how should we, you know, how would we think about statistics and what does general semantics have to say about that? Yeah. There's a famous quote. I think it's John Galbraith. I'm not sure. He said there are lies damn lies and statistics. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes. So, yeah, I mean, look, uh, and Postman had a thing about that, too, where, you know, you say a, a study from Harvard said this. And the moment you say that, people go, oh, yeah, must be right. Study right. from Harvard. Uh, and so when I did my Ph.D., of course, I used statistics, et cetera. Uh, so but you don't have to be do a Ph.D. to know about what you, you do in a sense of applying using formulas and applying them in studies. Uh, But basically, uh, what you want to do when you hear about a study is, uh, if you have time to do it, you probably do. You say, hmm, okay, so the study said this. Well, how many people were in the study? Um, Where would these people come from? Who was doing the study? For example, in social science fields, what's interesting, and I'm doing a PhD, and I notice when I do the PhD, you do a hypothesis. You which is you hypothesize something will turn out the way you want it to do. So I hypothesized that the students who I was teaching general semantics to would be less alienated than students that had a different curriculum. And it turned out that was the case. Mm -hmm. Well, why was that the case? Well, very likely because of general semantics. That was my argument. But I also included the study that it could have partly been from my bias. I like general semantics. Mm -hmm. So when I was teaching general semantics, I may have been putting more oomph into it and getting the students more excited about it than when I was teaching the other stuff. So just the fact that the experimenter themselves biases the experiment. So with statistics, you 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 don't want to be cynical and say, oh, that's the reason you shouldn't believe anything. That's not true. You believe to the extent that you have knowledge of what it is. But there was no absolute belief. In science, nothing is 100% true. When I did my statistical study, I said, I'm going to prove this within a 98% accuracy. I didn't say 100% because it wouldn't give me my PhD if I said 100%. <laughs> there is no 100% in science. Where is there 100%? Religion. Mm-hmm. Because it's either you believe in God or you don't. Right. Uh, if you don't believe in God, get out of the church, the synagogue, whatever it is. You don't belong here, which is reasonable. Because religion, the the uh, the paradigm in religion is 100% belief. The paradigm in science is let's prove it false. So the operating systems are different for each of them. Mm-hmm. And general semantics says be aware of the environment you're in and the operating system that that particular environment is using. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, 
within that, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, and I'm probably getting off topic here just to get your opinion on it, but there's a lot of, you know, attempts to bring science and religion together, you know, to, to, you know, merge them or find quote unquote scientific proofs of God or of religious. How, how do you, uh, what do you think about that aspect and, and general semantics, so, you know, from what you just said, kind of suggests that that's not a possibility. I did an article on this actually okay. about the science and religion and how um, it's not science or religion. Mm-hmm. The people think, uh, no, you know, science dismisses religion or religion dismisses science. In my opinion, that's a silly way to think about it. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the interesting things is many scientists are very religious. They go to church, they go to synagogue, they have belief in God. And yet on Monday morning when they go to the lab, they're doing science. Mm-hmm. How can that be? These are scientists. Don't they see the religion is ridiculous? Mm-hmm. I guess not, because they're practicing it. So what you I think, and I talked about this in the article, what I just said, basically the system that each of the, the way to think about the systems is what do they use to buttress their system? Science uses what's called a scientific method. And the scientist, and this is true of all science. I mean, mm-hmm. whether you're a chemist, a physicist, uh, me, a social scientist, an educator, you're doing an experiment, which is science is really about experiment. So you, science says, well, this is what, when you do an experiment, you say, well, this is what I think will happen. Let's see what happens. And then you do the experiment, and the experiment is over, and then you look to see what happened. And it either prove what you said and prove within limits, like within 98%. Correct. Why isn't it 100%? Because in science, there's always room left for chance. That's what's called sort of the black swan hypothesis. Everyone thought there were white swans until one day somebody saw a black swan. That's the chance. Oh, so in science, nothing is ever said 100%. And a good scientist will say, this is what it is now, 98%. Let's see what happens in a few years. And if someone proves this thing wrong, good for them. I mean, that's theoretically. I don't know if they really believe that. They probably but wouldn't say that, right? That's what it, no, but, but, but science is based on that. Should be. It should be. It's falsifiability. It's good if someone can prove it false because they've come up with a better hypothesis. Religion is different. In religion, if you prove something wrong, you get the Protestant Reformation. You get wars. <laughs> you don't right. want that. You want people to believe what you're saying. If they go off course, not good, which is fine if that's what you believe. So the systems are different. It's like you're going out on a date, and someone says, hey, gee, how do you think I look? And you really think they don't look so good. Well, is that the way you want the date to start? <laughs> right. Not really in my opinion, not so good. Oh, really? Okay, so you you say, well, I think uh, you comment on the clothing. I think that dress is very nice, looks nice on you, if, you know, whatever. But you equivocate. Right. Because you, you have to, the language, in general semantics, believes in context. Language and context are important. So uh, so that's that's the important thing. Know the context you're in. And know what, what's expected in that context. And even if you're... 
complying with that context, no, that's what you are doing. It's your choice. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Postman talked about that as a semantic environment, right? Know what the semantic environment and what the rules are, what the language is for that particular semantic environment. And that different environments are not the same and require different modes of thought or uh, different vernaculars or vocabularies even. Yeah, no, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> he gave some interesting examples. He said, you know, you don't want to uh, cheer at a funeral. Right. <laughs> and you don't want to sit on your hands at a ball game. You know, the cheering is for the ball game. The being quiet is at the funeral. So people who get confused about the role, you know, they'll throw you out <laughs> at the funeral. The ball game, I guess you could be quiet. But, you know, he's expecting to cheer for your team. Right. So, uh, so the idea is, you're right. The semantic environment. Know the semantic environment. You're in. He has a lot of cute examples. One of one of Postman's great books. One I recommend. That sadly is out of print, and I think even used costs a lot of money. But if you get it from the library, if you can, it's an excellent, in my opinion, an excellent book. It's called Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk. Um, I've written tons on that book. It's influenced my thinking. It's one of the best books he's written. And uh, it'll change your life, in my opinion, maybe. No, it's a great book. I actually have a copy of that book. So I somehow I got one off of eBay or something years ago. Wow. Love it. And uh, and ironically, I did order, you know, so um, for my PhD at Duquesne, it was uh, the two areas of concentration for me were um, interpersonal organizational communication and then the rhetoric of technology, which is media ecology. And so I had to order a book um, for a class. It was Technopoly by Neil Postman. Oh, yeah. And funny enough, I got it and it just happened to be an autographed copy. And it was Whoa. written in there and it said to, I think the guy's name was Dale or whatever, you know, Neil Postman. So I, that was just kind of by luck. I got that. Yeah. Good for you. But uh, so let me just ask one more. And I don't want to keep you too long. And it's been sure. so great talking to you, Martin, about well, thank you. Uh, general it. semantics. Uh, one of Kor Korzybski's um, is a, I, I, I always I'm Polish ironically and oh. i can't and i can't pronounce his name correctly right um, well, i think it's korzybski 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 i think i think the the guy bruce kodish who wrote a massive biography on korzybski right. that's how he pronounced it okay so that's i think that's the i think i'm guessing that's the right way to i'm not polish either but uh, yeah i am polish but i don't oh speak well there it. you go oh you are uh, that's right. I, and i cannot pronounce it uh, correctly korzybski yeah. One of the things that he talks about is the map is not the territory. Oh, yeah. So would you just explain that and then what that means for our thinking process? Yeah, I, I'll take myself to task. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's something I should have said earlier in the talk, and I would have been remiss. No. I would have punished myself by not <laughs> having dessert tonight had I remembered that, that, that I should have done that. But yes, the map is not the territory. Uh, there's arguments that he actually invented that term, um, research it, do a dissertation on it. But anyway, uh, it's associated with him in many quarters. And uh, basically, uh, the idea is um, the words we use to describe a situation or thing is not the thing or the situation in of itself. 
So um, basically, words can be considered verbal maps of the territory. It could be a physical reality, a table, or whatever, or a situation, or a person. And no matter how much you think you're describing whatever it is you're describing, you're never really completely describing anything. And Korzybski uh, had an example. He would come to class with a pencil, and he'd ask his students to write everything they knew about the pencil or everything they saw about the pencil. And it was always something you could find that you left out. Um, so even something as simple as that, if we leave things out, imagine when it gets more complex, you know, you're describing a person um, or your relationship with a person or you're describing really anything. You're only, only describing part of what it is you're describing. And also whatever it is you're describing, it's only coming through your perception of that. Someone else has a different perception because my, uh, my teacher at uh, Cooper Union would always say, uh, the light that enters your eyes is not the light that enters mine. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, hmm, you know, that's right. All this light that goes around, we're not getting the same rays. Different angles, different perspectives. And also every person's nervous system is unique. I don't mean different. I mean unique. Mm -hmm. Each of us has a unique nervous system. So that means whenever something happens, each of us, I mean, I can't, don't know how you're reacting, but basically it's processing it differently. Right. So as much as you think everyone's doing, you think, oh, this has to be right. It's so obvious. Nothing is obvious to you, but it may not be obvious to someone else. And as Ellis used to say, you don't run the universe. And if you think you do, you're going to want them institutionalized. <laughs> Although today there's not institutions, we'll probably wind up on the street. Or a president. Back in the 50s. Or president. <laughs> I don't know who the audience is, but basically I'm guessing that's okay to say. But yeah, basically that's right. So anyway, but it's good to know that and it, it, the, the idea of being more, and when I say humble, you don't have to go around, oh, what I'm saying, I have to be so careful. You know, and there are situations where you don't want to be that careful, when you want to project confidence, uh, when you want to... Um, when you want to even when you even want to uh, make up things for whatever particular purpose, there may be a reason for it. Um, so it's not that you have to apply these rules a hundred percent all the time. They're just things you may want to do in certain circumstances that might be beneficial to you. And just to think about them is a mental exercise that certainly couldn't hurt. Yeah, it just seems uh, that the whole system is a little bit about getting some humility and recognizing the fact that you don't know everything and putting things in their proper place and that even the language that you use to describe it is abstract and cannot be completely understood with 100% certainty. The whole idea of indexing and putting to people their own individualism and the idea of dating is recognizing that at certain times in history, things change. Um, our politicians don't want to do that, right? We're holding people accountable to quote unquote policy decisions that they had 30, 40, 50 years ago. And those things change. And, you know, so it just seems like uh, just a great perspective that is probably 
contrary to the way uh, our culture is generally pushing people, I might say it that way, right? The, the, the idea is that people should be confident and are right and my way or the highway, you know, and those types of things. And this is just a very different perspective on that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mentioned publishing a book of satires. One of the things I do, instead of getting angry, I write a satire. Mm-hmm. I sublimate my anger, <laughs> uh, which is which is a lot of fun. Right. Also because I, I get a kick out of it and it gets published and that's great. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the idea is that one of the satires, you're American. You have to have an opinion. And it's best to have an opinion on things you don't know. Right. And that's really true in TV, you know, like Sean Hannity. You know, I'm against, as I said, well, a lot against, but the point, so he's not the most formally educated person, but he comes across like, "Eh, this is the way it is. I grew up in Brooklyn in the 50s. That's the way a lot of people were back then. I'm sure they are now. But the idea is you want to come across on TV confident. It doesn't really matter what you say. It's how you say it. Well, this is the way it is. And by the way, what's happened today, what's interesting, uh, I'm listening to the book by Andy Borowitz. um, I forget the exact title. But he talks about how uh, politicians back even, uh, let's say, in the, in the 70s and 80s, when you would make a statement that was, you know, like Gerald Ford talked about the idea that uh, the Russians didn't control Poland. Well, you know, Poland was a satellite of Russia. Right. So so he had to really, really try so hard to walk that back. Whereas he said that today, if Donald Trump said that today, he wouldn't walk it back. He double down on it. He said, of course, Paul is not a satellite of Russia. Right. a satellite of America. It wouldn't, doesn't matter what he said. So in, in a way today, the, the bar on ridicule is so much, back then you would question it. Today it's celebrated. Right. So, uh, so general semantics has a long way to go to get people to think more deeply about things. And again, if you use this, if you use general semantics with a group of people who want to talk politics, who want to get into it, who just like the fight, you're wasting your time, and these people will not want to talk to you. Right. You only want to talk to people at the level that they're at, if you can. So talking to a person who really is opinionated, um, you may be able to like your reaction, so you don't react so strongly, but I'll, you, you really won't have a chance with them unless they're open to it. That was a mistake I made, actually, when I first learned general semantics. I tried to teach everyone else. Mm-hmm. And uh, boy, was that a mistake. Because unless they were ready for it, they didn't want to hear me. and They just uh, shut me out of discussions. I mean, being be in the school cafeteria talking to teachers about this stuff. And they said, no, nah, we just want to complain. They didn't say this. They just wanted to complain about stuff. And then right. when I started complaining with them, I was part of the group. Right. So you got to pick and choose how you're going to use this. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you can't. Uh, you can lead the horse to water. You can't make him drink. Right? It's the same. It's the right. saying. And so, some people will be open to that, but other people, like you said, and today, um, it is that way. You know, people will say certain things that aren't true, and rather than walk it back, or rather than try to walk a narrow line, they just spit it out there like it's truth, and um, and leave it at that. So. Well, hey, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've been fantastic. Dr. Martin Levinson, appreciate you being here. Past president of the Institute for General Semantics. Um, You've written a ton of books and articles, and uh, I I, I probably should get from you a short bio. I don't know if you have something available so that I can uh, share that with our audience and where they might be able to contact you and all of that stuff. And uh, we'll put on the... 
website where you can access the uh, the institute and how you can be a part of that. And uh, yeah, please please join it. By the way, it's a fifty dollar do a pitch a sales pitch. It's right, fifty dollars it. a it's fifty dollars a year. Uh, for the $50, and it's been that way. I was president for 13 years. It was $50 when I was president. Before I was president for like 10 or 15 years, it was still $50. So obviously, it's, inflation hasn't hurt the membership charge. Uh, for that, you're going to get four issues of the uh, et cetera, which is the journal. Uh, they also, the Institute does a, a conference every year in New York. Uh, you can go to that conference for free if you uh, join. You, there's a big dinner Friday night. That's free. Uh-huh. You get discounts on books and other materials the Institute has. And you're supporting one of the few organizations that uh, does not have a particular horse in the race of it should be either this or that. It's just a general thing to try to improve human thinking in a general way. So you're supporting an organization if that's what you think is worthy of support. That's putting that out there. So well, I guess I think I'll end on that. That's great. Uh, we'll have a place for them to sign up. And hey, thanks so much for being with me today and taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Well, you were a wonderful questioner. I appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a great evening. Yep. You too. Bye now. Bye. Well, I hope you've enjoyed that interview with Dr. Martin Levinson. How to Think Better with General Semantics. Again, uh, all of the show notes are on our website, mindforlife.org forward slash 067. You can find all the resources there. If you've enjoyed the show, hey, share it with a friend. Tell someone about it. You can also go online and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <music>